our second point to a sermon from five weeks ago. Now, you're probably wondering what exactly the first point was five weeks ago. I was thinking about, that's not usually how you want to break down sermons is, you know, set them up where part one comes, five weeks later part two comes, and expect everyone to grasp part one and part two. However, there is a sense of historical precedent. I do believe that it was Calvin who, after three years of exile from Geneva, coming back upon his arrival, picked up with the very verse he left off with. The same verse, three years later, by the way, part B this morning. So we're better than three years. There has been no exile, but there was a period of five weeks. So we're doing okay. The two points that we were working on, second of which is this morning, I will state just up front and then we'll briefly blow the dust off point one so that we can join in to point two. Point one that we looked at the text of Hebrews 12 here was that sanctification is promised to every believer. And I hope, again, sanctification is a topic that is a bit dicey at times. That is, the process by which one grows in holiness, in Christian conduct, that fleshes out that confession of faith. So conduct is evidence of confession. And as we speak of it in Scripture, we'll see various statements and uh, kind of things can become a bit uh, debatable in nature and cantankerous at times on the issue of the evidences of fruit in an individual's life. And there is, uh, I, I, we, we really have to, each of us have to grasp what it means to grow in Christ. And not only the big picture of how or what that means, but mine out how it occurs we have to appreciate, as Heidelberg pointed out this morning, we really have to appreciate how dangerous legalistic moralism is. It is so injurious to a believer. Well-meaning believers, well-meaning pastors, speaking of basically the provision of God in your life by the gospel is now wholly resting upon you to perfect and improve. That sets the believer down a pathway that leads to nothing but discouragement and death. Yet if we say that there is no growth in the Christian life, we have done a tremendous disservice to the power of the gospel as well. There is a growth that does take place in the life of every believer. So how does it occur? How is that growth to be expected? Well, we worked on that five weeks ago, so never mind. What we're really saying is first, we must grasp from the text of Hebrews 12 that sanctification, growth in grace, into the image of Christ for every believer is promised. It belongs to promise. The second point this morning that we'll mine out then, 
having, I think, arguably sufficiently laid its case five weeks ago, will grow into point two that is this morning that will build on that, and that is sanctifying promise calls for persevering action. So the promise doesn't go out and die. Promise goes out and gives life. So that sanctifying promise, I am assured that God will grow me by His grace? Yes. Is it a benefit that it belongs to me as I belong to Christ? Yes. Then what will my life look like? It will look like a life that is persevering in action. That's what it will look like. Again, point one being sanctification is promised to every believer. How did we get there? Just briefly, as I said, I would like to dust off point number one by way of introduction and then jump into point number two. But I did say that sanctification is promised to every believer and we see it in the text. Look with me in verse 11 of chapter 12 as we just kind of begin this dusting. Verse 11 there kind of gets right to the gist of the point of what we've been working on for months from chapter 11 and chapter 12. Verse 11 there, if you're looking in your text, I'll read it just briefly and then make this point where we see indeed that sanctification is promised to every child of God. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is where we spoke of discipline and the difficult providence of the Lord is chock full of promise. It isn't difficult unto despair. It is difficulty that is chock full of promise. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. It just means that it is difficult with promise. There is a purpose to the difficulty. The question is at the end of 11, if you notice there, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This sanctifying work, it will yield this to those who have been trained by it. The necessary question that we asked ourselves five weeks ago, how can I be sure this is, this is you reading this text, and this is your question that you're asking personally for yourself as you lay hold of promise that God has made to you that He will not abandon you, but He will perfect that which He has begun. You're asking yourself, having read that, if the peaceful fruit of righteousness is afforded only to those who have been trained by discipline, how can I be sure that I am among those who end up being trained by the discipline? How can I be sure that I'm among them? That this discipline will yield for me, Adam Thomas, it will yield for me the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How can I be sure that I will be trained by it unto the peaceful fruit of righteousness? lest we think there's some in here who will experience God's heavy hand. And the discipline unto them will perfect them. They will grow in righteousness thereby. And the rest of us, the, the most of us, will die on the sidelines. The question is, how can I be sure I share 
in the training? The answer is that according to chapter 11 and 12, both of them, if we were to take the entire sermon here and put it together, according to chapter 11 and 12, both points to the truth that God trains and disciplines every child whom he receives. Did you see the connection of how you can be sure? That you'll be trained, that you'll grow in grace as a result. The assurance comes that you belong to him by faith. Not just some of the children are trained unto righteousness and sanctification. All of the children are trained unto the fruit of righteousness. Every child whom he receives. In other words, we have to get this, brothers and sisters. We have to for our daily health in the gospel. There is no one who has been justified who will not also be sanctified. There is no soul that flees to Christ for refuge and experiences abandonment. What then do we say of good works? In sanctification, those fruits of righteousness, what role do they have in the examination of our lives as believers? This is where we're heading this morning, and I'm eager to convince you that good works in your life, growth in grace, is the evidence of faith. It is the fruit of a true and lively faith. Good works, growing in grace, is the effect, not the cause of justification. I cannot satisfy myself that you would hear that and not grasp it. I know it seems like that's, that's obvious. That's Captain Obvious stuff. We know that. Do we? Do we really by faith? Are we so persuaded that that is the truth? Because we confessionally say it, no doubt. We, we did today. But oftentimes, our faith wanes and we hear something and we act in discord to what we have heard. And we, we, we flip the paradigm by many causes. We flip the paradigm and we do operate as though sanctifying grace and growth in holiness gives way to justification. And we live in such a manner that justification is the fruit of sanctification. 
we have to grasp that it is the other way around. That sanctification is the effect of justification and that no one is justified by works. No one. I'm eager to convince. But then there is this other side, right, to, this, to the entire discussion of growing by grace. If we rest and rely and we, and, and we, we labor so long to, to, to develop and to, to, to love, to, to revel in justification, that is righteousness before God for a sinner by declaration of the obedience of Jesus. And that it doesn't come by works, but by faith alone. Then all hell will break loose in the sanctification category. Literally. Lasciviousness. Disobedience. Lives that don't conform to the law of God. We need to turn the temperature up on legalism to get people to I don't know what you call it, grow? Reality is if we turn it up, people die. Heidelberg asked this question, this very thing that we're going to explore this morning in question 64. It was this question. Doesn't this teaching, that is, that, that sanctification will occur by promise because of the cause of the gospel, it will cause a believer to grow in fruitfulness. It will cause it. Can pastors rest in that, or do they force the congregation into a list of issues? As Heidelberg said in the last question this morning, it cannot be by the precepts of men, but that which is in accord with God's law. But do we rest there? Will the preaching take effect in the life of God's people? Heidelberg asks, doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? They hear of free grace and the work and person of Jesus Christ, and doesn't that promote wickedness? The answer is this, of which we must get no. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. That is, as Paul described it in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, as I move toward the second point this morning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. With promise then, firm underneath our feet, firmly established as the source of all sanctification, all holiness, all sanctity, is bring, brought to me by promise. We see further yet, and most certainly so, point number two this morning, 
sanctifying promise calls for persevering action. Promise gives way to life. Let me read the text for you of 14 through 16, recalling where we are in the text that sanctifying promise of which we have established in 11 and in 12 calls for persevering action in 14 through 16. Verse 14, if you look there in your text, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Now here as we progress for, um, this actually was supposed to be uh, Sermon 1 and Sermon 2. It looks like I've given birth to Sermon 3. Not to say birth in light of current circumstances, but that is... Um, There will be, I I started to work on this and I just could not get to Esau sufficiently where I felt like, you know, I might pass by that and there would be about a thousand questions in the mind of the listener about Esau. So I thought, you know, I perhaps as I began to write this morning's text time, um, we'll slow down, which I know you can't believe. We'll slow down and we will hit on the three remaining statements of this text. So this morning, the apostle here in the text gives us five statements regarding our perseverance in Christ, and we will cover just two of them this morning. I did plan on covering more, but we just aren't going to do it. So to the first one, the first of two this morning, of the five statements regarding our perseverance, because again, sanctifying promise firmly under our feet, that promise gives way to life. He will surely do it. And this promise calls for persevering action. What is the action within the text? You see it there in verse 4 of the very first one. We'll handle one and two. And the first one is strive for peace with everyone. Now, again, here you go back to the original context where these people are. And it isn't just like everybody is um, what my mother would say, hunky-dory. I don't know where that phrase really comes from, but I just remember her saying it all the time. Um, so it is that everyone is, I don't know, skipping around, holding hands or whatever that is, and it's, it's easy come, easy go, and so he just kind of throws out the easiest of them all, and that is strive for peace with everybody. Rather, we recognize within the original context, this is a, an embattled group of believers. The context with which this sermon is written in is that they are surrounded by adversaries to the gospel. There is persecution in the community regarding the gospel. And so he directs them towards this persevering in the promise of the power of God. He drives them to the ethics of the gospel, right? Because promise of gospel gives way to life that is lived. So he drives them to these ethics. Now, why is it important that you and I continue to mirror and continue to live out by grace this ethic of the gospel, this ethic of peace? Why? Why is peace front and center? And how is it that we ought to continue to cultivate in our interactions one with another and those who are our perceived adversaries 
at large with a spirit of peace. We could think quite quickly, actually, about why. And that is, I would start with God is a God of peace. You continue to read on in Holy Scripture and you see that Christ is the King of peace. And you recognize as a believer by faith who looks longingly to Christ, you have experienced peace with God through Christ who is your King of peace. You are an ambassador of peace. That peace with which you experience on a daily basis is to be necessarily shared with those around you. A peaceable people. That would be the opposite of a contentious people. That's what marks the power of the gospel in your life as you interact. A peaceable Spirit. Now again, the language is more aggressive than that. It is strive for this peace with everyone, not just those that you are getting along with. Particularly, the striving is against those who are striving against you. Adversarial relationships, adverse circumstances, in them manifest and strive for peace rather than returning contentiousness for conflict, but being a peaceable individual. Now, oftentimes, peace is thought of in the context of standing for nothing. Because again, oftentimes, to stand for anything of conviction means that you're not a peaceable person. You are a person who loves conflict because you believe in something. That is the spirit of our age. To believe in something, even for someone to know that you believe in something, is to create contention. So it is that there is a way by which we are dependent, once again, upon grace and wisdom. As we interact in our jobs, at our jobs, in relationships with those that are unbelievers, as a church, as our testimony to those that we interact with, that we are striving for that ability to be peaceable in our interactions with others, while at that same time being a people of faith. That is faith in Christ. But what is the basic ethic of this striving for peace? It is, once again, God is a God of peace. Christ is the King of peace, and we, His people, have peace. Therefore, we are to share that peace with others. The second one, which will take just a hair bit more time this morning, uh, is number two, the second of five statements that he gives here for the life of perseverance in promise of sanctification. And that is kind of the big one. Verse 14 there, the second one, beyond striving for peace and the opposite of being a contentious people. It is strive. You could continue that statement there at the beginning of 14. Strive for the holiness 
without which no one will see the Lord. Handling the call for each of us to strive for holiness is to be rightly handled in a twofold manner. I want to handle them both. First, we will handle striving for holiness. How do we strive for holiness? And then as we labor to grasp how it is that we strive for holiness, we will consider the statement that says, I think that is the statement in concern here in the text, without which no one will see the Lord. How do I strive for holiness? First, I would uh, argue that striving for holiness is an active response to the gospel. It is an active response to the gospel. Striving for holiness. This is for each of us. It isn't for somebody sitting next to you any more than it is for you. Striving for holiness involves tremendous effort in the life of the believer. It is the effort to die to self by grace through faith in Christ. It is a response to the power and provisions in the gospel. That is, to those who have received the gospel, they have heard the proclamation, the victory announcement that Christ has overcome death. He has risen, He has ascended, and He is Lord who reigns. You can look by faith to Him and He will justify the ungodly. That is the announcement of victory. And all who share in that victory announcement, they are united to Christ by faith. There is a responsive life that then flows from that confession. And the response involves tremendous amounts of effort. If the Christian life, as defined by you, does not involve any effort to die to that which is in clear opposition to the text of Holy Scripture, then there is no grounds for confidence. that you belong to Him. If that which is in clear opposition to the text of Scripture is prized in my life, in such a way that my life is marked by godless behavior. Then there is no grounds for confidence in my confession. For the power of the gospel is also its provision for sanctity in my life. Again, I hope I have sufficiently anchored it where it belongs. I at no time want to confuse. Say that the power 
to sanctify myself, driven on by my own disciplines, is proof of my confidence in Christ. Rather, it is my confidence in Christ that drives on and provides power as He provides the power for my life by faith through grace in growth. If I were to ask you, where does the power for growth come from? Where does it come from? It comes from Him. We have to get the order right. But by getting the order right, we never want to throw out the fact that it still calls an active, responsive life to the believer. Striving for holiness is an action-filled response to the gospel of grace. I want to mine this out just a little bit further before we conclude with the, with the statement, without which no one will see the Lord. What is, perhaps you would ask yourself this question, what is the experience of dying to self? Like if you, right now you're hearing that again, fruit that is produced in my life will give way to more and more confidence, stability in my life as I see this fruit being birthed in me by the power of Christ. When I don't see any fruit whatsoever, and again, here we have to be, we have to be careful because we don't want to get into the, to the, to the uh, kind of scales of the Christian life, that if I have 10 bushels, I know I'm growing. If I have one bushel, I must doubt that I'm growing. It's far more complex than that. But if you were to ask, in your growth in Christ, what does it look like right now? What does it look like for me to die to self? If it is that striving for holiness involves an ongoing battle to die to self, what does the dying to self look like? Is it just kind of too hard to define and it's just Christian kind of platitudes that we really can't describe and we can't really concretely hold on to so we just kind of throw out this jargon and it kind of falls down like this and maybe some of us understand it, maybe others of us don't. Yet we find out that a tremendous amount of our confidence rests in knowing it and so we all walk out of here kind of confident, kind of not. Okay, well, let's stop. Let's mine it out then so that our confidence level grows, not in us but rightly so in Him. What does it look like to experience dying to self? The answer that I'm putting forward is this. It is a continued heartfelt sorrow for sin. Wait a minute, you heard that before, haven't you? You confessed it this morning in the final question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does it look like to die to self? It is a continued, heartfelt sorrow for sin. Causing us to hate and turn from sin. Always more and more. There is an awareness that comes by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit. That what your behavior is. That that which, how you're living your life 
stewarding yourself properly by faith, there is an awareness there of sinful behaviors. You know, I know, by grace, right behaviors, right attitudes, right mindsets. And we also, by grace, know wrong behaviors, wrong attitudes, wrong mindsets. We know these categories. We know the Spirit of God is working in our lives through the gospel to make us aware of these wrong thoughts, wrong behaviors. We call it sin. It is told us in the text, and the Spirit heightens our sensitivity and awareness to it in living. We know So dying to self involves, as we contact those sins, as we come into connection with that mindset, with that heartfelt attitude, as it manifests itself in relationships, in our own heart's idolatry. It is a tremendous amount of effort, by grace, through faith, in the person of Christ, to continue to cultivate heartfelt sorrow for my sin, causing me, Adam Thomas, to hate that sin and to turn from it more and more. Promise is not undone by perseverance. Perseverance is driven on By promise, faithful is he who will surely do it. It involves, by the grace of God, tremendous effort on the part of the believer. So number one, striving for holiness, as he tells you this morning, to strive for holiness in your life. It is as much a mindset and a meditation as it is a list. It's easier to write lists, isn't it? Because it doesn't require faith. The text is clear. So it is. If it is true that true Christians will strive for holiness, as a consequence. We have to get it right that they will strive. You and I will strive for holiness. When we hear strive for holiness, we will. How can we be so sure? Because it is a consequence of the gospel in our lives, according to the person of the Spirit. So I say to you, if it is true that true Christians will strive for holiness as a consequence of the gospel, according to the person of the Spirit, then how do we interpret the following statement? Without which, no one will see the Lord. How do we interpret this statement? If it is true that every Christian in here will strive for holiness... then how do we handle the statement without which no one will see the Lord as he speaks to the people of God? The answer to that, I hope to convince you in the next, uh, you know, hour and a half. We rightly recognize this statement to be a fact, not a condition. 
we rightly recognize this statement to be a statement of fact, not a condition. That is, it might seem better preaching, bring the folk under languishing over their own lack of productive holiness in their lives and great conviction on the precepts of men if we were to turn it into a condition. That is to say something a little bit more along the lines of a conditional statement would be God has done his part, now do yours. Or, be warned, you're not going to see him. That would get the people up off of their chairs and burn in the midnight oil and holiness with a threat of not seeing the Lord if we were to create a condition out of a statement of fact. Rather, we must get right this statement because acceptance with God is never built upon one's own personal achievements and holiness. It is never built upon that. Again, think about, I I, I pause here just briefly as we kind of wind down because I don't think we really do appreciate, maybe we do, how hurtful and dangerous legalism is. Think with me just for a brief moment, just a brief moment. Hashtag mind blown. That something along the lines of taking this statement and making it a condition would render in effect, we would all be confessing together, we would be suggesting to one another that Christ's active obedience is deficient. That was the hashtag mind-blown part. Because you don't want to say that. And you don't want to live in such a manner that manifests that. Christ's obedience is all sufficient. Acceptance with God, praise Him, is never built upon your personal achievements and holiness. Therefore, we recognize this statement of the apostle here, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not a call to condition, but is a statement of fact. How then do we understand this statement of fact in the context? And this is our last portion for this morning, that we'd rightly recognize that promise gives way to persevering faith. Promise, not condition driven on by mere warning, but also undergirded by promise. How do we understand this contextually? It involves, this is my quick answer, and then I'll develop my long and lengthy and winded answer, and that is, we understand it to mean that striving in holiness for the believer involves enduring the weight of discipline. 
It involves enduring the weight of discipline. Read with me in the text again if we look at verse 10 through 14. This is what it means for you to strive for holiness, this twofold. One, there is this tremendous effort by grace through faith in Christ. And there is, again, that same looking to Christ and enduring discipline that gives way to holiness. Look in verse 10. For they disciplined us, speaking of our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. You see that statement there? A double underline. That we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, with this promise firmly in hand, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, rather be healed. It's going to work. This is His work. Faithful is He. Strive for peace in this process, this difficult process. Strive for peace with everyone. Because it's going to work. What He's doing in these difficult circumstances is going to work. With this promise, live. Live. It's going to work. This is His Work. Faithful is He. Therefore, lift them up. Make them straight. Be healed. Strive for peace by promise. And strive for holiness in the process. Strive for obedience in the process of discipline. In this difficult context, strive by grace in the provision of Jesus. You haven't told us about Jesus. Yes, I did. Verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance. The race is set before us. Doing what? How do I run? I look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. We look to Him. Run. Be healed. Lift it up. Strengthen your weak knees. By looking to Him, strive with His strength for peace with everyone. And strive by looking to Jesus for the holiness. In this process, Because there's a promise for you in it. That you will see the Lord. You will see Him. Because you're a child. And He's disciplining children. Discipline is chock full of promise. Because without such discipline, there is no production of holiness. Without the production of holiness, there's a concern for the promise. That is, 
because. If I could encourage you this morning about difficult providence, discipline from God, trials and tribulation. Look at this text afresh. It is packed full of hope. It is because of this very painful providence. Do you see? I mean, it's a causal relationship. Because of this very difficult providence. You are assured that you are coming to share in his holiness. A holiness with which, without which, you would not see the Lord. It is a statement of fact, not a condition. In other words, in a brief conclusion, according to chapter 12 earlier, God is treating you as a child. The conclusion this morning is this then, as we consider that we have not just been called by grace to trust Christ, but then we have been set upon a feverish task of good works apart from faith, apart from grace, in our own striving. And that eternal life and seeing the Lord is on the line. And it is at risk for only those who can't perform greater acts of holiness. Rather, we recognize God never accepts us. Please hear if you are burdened with a spirit of legalism. Considering how it is that you'll grow by grace. God never accepts us. Ever. If I could add maybe more to that, like something like ever, 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 ever. As good pastors always overstate. I couldn't possibly hear. God never, let's see, ever, 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 ever accepts us in this life or in the life to come on the basis of something other than the perfect obedience of Christ. I conclude with this statement from the text of Scripture. If it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your provisionary strength, your spirit to produce your fruits. That's why they're called the fruits belonging to the spirit, they're yours. So, Lord, we ask as dependent branches connected to the vine, produce your fruits in us. And so with that promise that you will produce, that every branch will experience productive fruit, we ask that you would enable us to hate that sin which does remain more and more 
so that we would have even greater experiences of joy and peace and communion with you. However, Lord, prevent our hearts from turning to legalism to think that we can somehow produce peace. We can somehow ourselves produce your love. Hallowed be thy name. Christ's name we pray, amen.